What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. We're a little bit more than 48 hours away from the trading deadline in the NBA, recording around 1230. Joining us now from the ringer, part of group chat as well. It is Justin Verrier. Verrier, what's going on, man? How are you? I am great. I'm ready for these trades to start flying, my friend. Yeah, me too. So I was thinking about it last year. We had, of course, the big news with Kevin Durant because our old friend here in Boston, Kyrie Irving, decided he wanted to get traded. So then Durant got traded. So I don't think we're going to have, obviously, that level of fireworks where one of the best players in the league gets traded. But what are you thinking? Do you think this is going to be a busy trade deadline overall or do you think it's sort of going to be boring? So everyone is suggesting that this could be a quieter deadline than usual. But having done this for many years now, I feel like we say that every single year and all of a sudden a Kevin Durant style trade starts to pop up. Now, I would say we we would see those sorts of dribbles come out well before the deadline, like Kyrie got traded before Durant. And so it made sense to trade Durant. But I don't know. I'm starting to look around. I assume like a DeJounte Murray will probably go that level of player. But, you know, like Utah is kind of slumping as we're getting into the deadline. Maybe a Laurie Markinen starts to pop up here. Things happen in that like last couple days. So I'm hoping something bigger than a DeJounte Murray trade happens. But right now, uh, I guess it would be doubtful. Yeah, and as it sits right now with the Celtics, I mean, I was talking about this the other day on the pod. Some of the big names that like would be good fits, like you mentioned Kelly Olenek, our old friend. That would be awesome. A guy like Dorian Finney-Smith to add another wing, that would be awesome. But because basically they just have this Grant Williams trade exception. And if you look at really the top six, seven guys on the team. So after Horford, Hauser, and then it's Pritchard. You got guys like Brissett, Cornette, Keita. It feels like to me there was not really an avenue for the Celtics to upgrade significantly. So it feels like 
at least from my perspective, maybe you disagree, it's basically adding an eighth or a ninth man, maybe upgrading the Pritchard spot or maybe adding another big. I mean, ideally what I'd like is just another wing because I feel like that could help you down the stretch of the season as well. We saw last year in the postseason at times, Pritchard, they could take advantage of him because of his size. But is that what you think the Celtics do here if they do anything? Yeah, the Celtics are, in terms of draft capital, in a prime position to add like a seventh man, a rock solid rotation player to fill out their like top eight or top nine in the playoffs, right? Like a Bruce Brown, for instance, who you could presumably get for a round or first round pick would be perfect for this team in particular because they could use just like what a steady guy he is, just like a good defender. That's exactly on the wing. That's I think what they need more than anything. Unfortunately, just as you mentioned, the salaries just don't match up to the point where they can get a Bruce Bounder, or even maybe a Kelly Olynyk, who would be another guy I think I would target. And you're starting to hear things about them looking at bringing Kelly back. But because he makes so much and because they did such a good job with their roster, where they're six, five deep with good veterans on top money contracts, they can't find the matching here. And so I think you're probably resigned to an Andre Drummond type of player, maybe like a DeLon Wright, some of these guys. So you aren't just cutting your entire roster just to get another guy in there. And so in, in, in certain ways, it's good because it shows how good the Celtics are and how they don't really need a ton of things. On the other hand, it would be great because they have the draft picks and the want to in order to add someone like Bruce Brown. Yeah, it's a good point because you look at that Olenek contract, he's making I mean, north of $12 million, so that's expensive for them to get to that point. If you do that, you're going to have to put a bunch of small contracts together and maybe somebody that is in your rotation. You're not going to do that for Kelly Olenek. And then, so you mentioned a couple of names there, DeLon Wright and Andre Drummond. So another guy that has popped up that could be interesting is Lonnie Walker. So he left the Nets game last night. He's dealing with hamstring tightness. So I was just looking through some of the stuff on him. He's getting up five threes per game in just 18.8 minutes. So I think Joe is already trying to get Brad to trade for the guy. He's he's hit 43.6% of his threes. It's by far his best season, hitting 4.2 threes per 36. The only qualified guys that are over that number are Steph Curry and Dante DiVincenzo. So it's by far his best shooting season. He's 6'4". He's cheap enough that you could bring a guy like that in is that the type of player that you think would fit for this team especially considering like DeLon Wright it makes a lot of sense from a defensive perspective because he's been good on that end of the floor the only issue is like he's really struggles shooting the ball but maybe they just want a bigger guy to come off the bench and give him a couple of minutes maybe like in a playoff series you can say hey we need him on the floor over Pritchard because of the size he can handle the ball a little bit but Lonnie Walker a guy that makes sense to you yes and no On the one hand, he has the history where he pretty much swung a game for the Lakers against the Warriors last postseason. So you know this guy can contribute in the postseason. Instant offense off the bench, as you were mentioning. Uh, On the other hand, he's the type of guy I think you can't take the ball away from as soon as you get it. If you've watched the Nets this year and in the few games Walker has played, and now that's another issue, he's been hurt on and off. And so you probably want someone in the rotation that you can count on to give minutes because right now they just need minutes to rest some of their other guys. But it's really a duel when he plays and Cam Thomas plays between who can get up the most shots. It's almost like they have an unspoken bond there. Like it's it's the Highlander rule, I guess, where like maybe having one of those guys is good, but two of those guys is too much. And I wonder the Celtics it just seems like, especially lately, they've defaulted to guys 
who fit a type where they're just kind of going to play their role. And then if they don't need them at times, they can just like push them down the rotation or not play them. Uh, and they're going to be able to shoot, but you, they, they have a little bit more defensive oomph in, in that case. And I don't know, it just feels like they're a little bit more programmatic and having someone like Walker might be a nice compliment to that. But on the other hand, it doesn't feel like the type of guy that Brad is like targeting these days. Yeah, it's a good point because you think about it like O'Shea Brissett is a guy that's given them a lot of minutes at times this season. There are some games where he doesn't even play him. So I think that he should be playing more. He helps them significantly on the offensive glass. He's been really good when it comes to that. But so DeLon Wright is somebody that you think you could probably get for what? Like second round pick, something along those lines? Because the defense with him on the floor, shockingly in Washington, they improved by 6.2 points per 100, which is the 90th percentile via cleaning the glass. So if you need a guy that can go out there and at least give you competent defense, he would fit in there. And it doesn't cost you a lot to get a guy like that. And to the other thing you mentioned, he wouldn't need to play. It'd be nice to have him, but he's not somebody that you're like, oh, we got to get this guy minutes. There's no pressure to play him. So maybe it's just another tool for another tool in the toolbox for Missoula. Yeah. And they have all of these random second round picks that may or may not have protections from uh, Brad just moving down. What was it? 10 to 15 times in last year's draft. So like yeah. they have seconds they could just throw away there to get a veteran to fill out the roster might be a little redundant if you want to rely on Peyton Pritchard. Like, so if I had my druthers, like, am I going to add another guard on the one hand for just to get through 82 games? Sure. Right. An 82 game player is very valuable to a team like the Celtics. Um, but in the playoffs, how much is right actually going to play? I don't know. Personally, if you're going to go that route, I would probably target a big, if only because I want to make sure that I don't have to rely on Luke Cornett. And because uh, you always worry with Chris Stops, with just injuries, and obviously Al, you want to pace him out over the course of this last season, uh, the second half of the season. So, like a Drummond to me makes a little bit more sense than going guard route because I know, like, if I had to turn to him, like maybe he could play ten minutes in a playoff game, and we'll just hold our breath and hope he could just grab some rebounds. Um, but Wright's like a solid player, and if you could pick up a solid player for virtually nothing, like I think you would do that as the Celtics. Yeah, and on Drummond, you look at the numbers per 36, he's 17.6 and 11.3 rebounds. Only issue is the free throw shooting, but that's been an issue throughout his whole career. And the big question with this team down the stretch is, can you keep Al healthy? Can you keep Chris Dobbs healthy to the point you were saying? Now, Luke Cornett, they've been good rebounding with him on the floor in terms of the offensive glass, but in general, like the numbers with him on the floor have not been great. And One of the issues the Celtics have had this season is they have been vulnerable on the offensive glass. Teams are rebounding at a high rate against them, especially lately. Like teams, we've seen it now in the scouting report. Teams are just crashing the glass against the Celtics. The Lakers did it the other night and they didn't even have Anthony Davis. And that's not a great offensive rebounding team. So Drummond is certainly a guy that could come in and spell Cornette or spell Al. And even maybe this is even a way where you say down the stretch of the season and they've been really good about not playing Allen back-to-backs, they give Porzingis a lot of time off as well, that, hey, if you're all in right now, your second apron team, you have Drew, you have Kristaps Porzingis, might as well go after a third big. Like, there's not many third bigs that would be better on a team than Andre Drummond. So if you're talking about the impact that he could have, these guys we talk about, because obviously, like, if they could get Alex Crusoe, that would be awesome, but there's no way they're going to be able to get him in terms of the draft capital. He's, and look, the contract is nice, but there are going to be so many teams, contenders, looking for Alex Crusoe. Drummond may be, like, sort of the best type of player they could actually get, and 
could actually have an impact on the team. Yeah, Caruso would make a lot of sense for that team. But I agree. I think Drummond has almost become underrated just because he's been such a disappointment from where we started from. And now I'm a UConn guy. Like I grew up in Connecticut. So I'm very familiar with the disappointment of Andre Drummond. But I think it overlooks perhaps like what he actually does well is, which is what you're mentioning is the rebounding. And like, I wouldn't rely on him for rim protection. I wouldn't necessarily rely on him for consistent source of offense. But if you're saying, Hey, I just need a big body, which I I do think the Celtics want to stock up on those just because of, uh, if you want, if you're worried about Al, you want to have the girth there just in case you want to have a contrast with Porzingis. And so Drummond's one of the best rebounders in NBA history. Like he says this a lot and it is funny when he says that because there is not a lot of self-awareness to that, but like percentage wise and like even when he slots in as a starter for the Bulls, he's racking up 10, 11, 12 rebounds a game. And so if that is a sore spot you have concern about, I think Drummond makes a lot of sense and he only comes for what, like half of the TPE that they have. And so you're probably only giving up like a second and then you could just slot him in for nothing. I, I think he makes a lot of sense there yeah and the other part of that too is if you look at the eastern conference now Woj had the reporting this morning that you're going to get a reevaluation of Embiid in a month so we'll see what happens with that but that's a big body that you have to defend in the postseason we saw that last year obviously the Celtics have had success with Embiid but it'd be nice to have another body to throw at him and with Giannis not that he'd cover Giannis directly but it's another guy that can at least be in the paint and sort of help out when it comes to that and not that anybody they cover Jokic, but if you get to the NBA Finals and the yeah. Nuggets are there, it'd be nice to have another big body like Andre Drummond. So I'd be on board with that. I'm with you like a couple of years ago. I did not want the Celtics like he was sort of a topic of conversation here a couple of years ago. This is when he was like considered to be a better player. I'm like, no, I, I don't really want Andre Drummond. But now it does sort of make sense in terms of the role that he plays. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like a couple of years ago when Dwight Howard took a lesser role for the Lakers and... He gave them quality minutes. Maybe that's what Drummond could do. But you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to get back to with all the second round picks the Celtics have. Last year at the trading deadline, that was like the thing. Like Sadiq Bey went for five second round picks. Now, I don't want Bey in the Celtics. He, he's shot the ball really poorly. But the bigger point is, do you think those second round picks are going to be what's going around the league again? I don't. Why did that become such a commodity? It's, it seems strange to me that all these second round picks were flying around. My understanding was it was because everybody had already traded all of their first round picks. Okay. And so <laughs> if you have a lot of these teams and the teams that have been going broke with first round picks in order to get, for instance, a Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert are typically the teams that probably caved out their depth. And so they're the most likely teams looking to add bench pieces to their roster. And thus they would have those seconds available. You're also getting to an issue with the Stepien role where even teams that like the Lakers, for instance, they don't owe a ton of picks, but because you cannot trade picks in successive years, you're just like encumbered. And then like you're getting into a situation where there are a lot of pick protections. And so for instance, if a pick is protected for three straight years, you can't trade that pick for three years. And so I wish there weren't as many guardrails because a lot of times at the trade deadline, I feel like I'm doing like legal S or like a big long division math problem because that's what the NBA trades tend to be. But I do think it is a, a case of teams are going more all in than ever before. And so if you need to trade draft capital, just take this bushel of seconds that might be something in the future. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know why they need to still have the Stepien rule, to be honest. Like that was wasn't it? It wasn't that the old Cavaliers owner or something that basically it was put in there to protect owners. Like 
if an owner wants to give up all that draft capital, then why shouldn't they be able to give it up? I mean, it may be stupid in the long run, but I don't understand why you have to I don't understand why you have to do that alternate years. And you can still do pick swaps, right? I mean, so I guess you can get away with some of that. But yeah, that makes sense. The teams have given up so much that it's like, okay, I guess we'll take all your seconds. All right. So just looking at some of these other teams in the East with Milwaukee, they don't have a first rounder. They don't really have intriguing players to trade outside of salary filler. Like you see Bobby Portis's name being thrown out there. And I mean, you look at this team too. I think that Waz on your show is the only person like that criticizes Giannis. I mean, this guy's got two coaches fired in like the past couple of months, not to mention the fact that he's got his brother on the bench making $2 million and he may be one of the worst players in the NBA. So when you look at the Bucks, like how much of an upgrade, like at first when the DeJounte Murray stuff was getting out there, it was like, oh, could the Bucks go after him? How could they even go? Like, what could they even offer to get a guy like DeJounte Murray? So can Milwaukee make any move of substance here? I think they're in the same boat as the Celtics, where they're probably just looking for the same type of players, where it's just rotation players. The difference is that Milwaukee would probably start them, whereas we were just saying that the Celtics might bring them off the bench in a regular season game, let alone in a playoff series. Uh, They have, as far as I know, two second round picks available to them. The contract math is a little bit easier for them. And this is how wonky the NBA is where like, because they have a Bobby Portis, technically it is a little bit easier for them to get into the mix for some of these other caliber players that we've been talking about. Um, But they have like Portland second this year, which might be a pretty high second overall might be like fifth in that round. And I think they have a future one. So they have pretty much, Whatever isn't nailed down, you can have. And I do think that might be an advantage for them. Maybe not against if they're in a bidding war with the Celtics, but maybe some of these other teams, if you're haggling over first-round picks and protections, the book, the Bucks are very clearly all in. So if you want this second-round pick, you could have it. Just give me a useful player in order to be my seventh man at this time. I don't know who that is, but honestly, anybody who could reasonably defend a Royce O'Neal type, like... I would be getting immediately because they just need bodies at this point. Because even like a Malik Beasley, who has shot the ball really well this year, and I think you can count on for at least to be a stretch there, like that guy's getting played off the floor at some point in the playoffs. I don't know where it is, but as the farther you go on, he's going to be more and more of a liability. Yeah, it's interesting because it's nice that they got Doc and Adrian Griffin wasn't working out for them. I've never been the biggest Doc Rivers fan as a coach. I mean, he's a good coach. I would look at the fact that he has blown a lot of three to one leads. I'm not trying to take it away from him. Obviously he's more experienced than Griffin, but I just don't know like personnel wise what he can really do. Right. They, they had defensive problems. And I know at the beginning of the season, Griffin was doing crazy things. I think maybe part of that was they had drew holiday and then they didn't have drew holiday right before the season. So they wanted to play that like Toronto style defense, which is like, it's kind of worked here for us, like playing a drop coverage. But in terms of the personnel, I don't think there's really much that, Doc can help with. I don't think all of a sudden they're going to be much better defensively. So maybe I'm going to sound like an idiot in a couple months from this, but unless there's like an injury with the Celtics, I don't feel as threatened by Milwaukee. It would definitely be a historical outlier if they did make it to the finals. Like there's just no precedent for a coach coming outside of the organization, stepping in and then bringing them to the finals, let alone a title, let alone even the Eastern Conference finals. Like the comp everyone makes is Ty Lue, but Ty Lue was already an assistant coach for that team before he took over from right. David Blatt. I mean, you're already starting to see in the few games with Doc. I mean, he, it's hilarious that he won the one game and all of a sudden he's going to be the all-star coach. But like, <laughs> yeah. 
the the rest of those games have been a mess. And this is what's going to happen when you've got a coach bringing in his own principles, his own coaches. Dave Yeager comes in into the locker room, assumingly, uh, assumingly he's going to be a big voice in what they're doing there. And so like everything is probably mismatched and you're already dealing with some disconnect between Giannis and Dame and the pick and roll and their offense and like how they're working together. And so I would be surprised if this year the Bucks figure it out. I think long term, like you got to bet on Damon Giannis and Doc is a good enough coach to maybe mend whatever issues exist between them. If not, like just on the court, just the chemistry that they have there. But you're right, yeah. Th- this feels like a bridge too far this year. Where I would be much more worried about like if Embiid came back, for instance, or even if this Cavs team, if this continues on, they've just been absolutely electric for about a month now. That would probably be a bigger concern at this point. Yeah, that and it is hilarious. The Doc's coaching the All Star game. I don't understand why, and not I don't care that Joe Mazzulla is not coaching. Like it's not about that. It's just weird that you can't have the same coach coach it two years in a row. I, I don't really understand why that's something that is in the rules. It doesn't make any sense to me. But how about Philly? So as I alluded to earlier, the Embiid news that he's going to be out at least four weeks, then reevaluated. This is actually a contender that is going to have a ton of salary cap space. The question is, who are you going to give it to in the offseason? I guess you could use it in a sign and trade. But you would think at the very least, they're going to want to add somebody that can do something on the ball, right? Because you take and beat off the floor. Really, the only guy that can create and create for other guys right now is Maxi. Like, Harris can score a little bit, but you, I, I have to imagine they at least do something to try to at least stay out of the play-in and see where they're at when Embiid comes back. Or maybe doesn't come back, but at least try to avoid the play-in. I think a lot of it depends on what's going on with Embiid, and they have been particularly secretive about the details, about what procedure he's going through, the recovery timeline and all that. And it does matter which type of procedure he makes, as far as I understand, because one, he could rush back maybe for a playoff run, which already seems unwise for a guy who's routinely hurt in the playoffs and routinely hurt all the time anyway. So I don't know why you would rush him him back to begin with, but there's also a different type of procedure, which would mean a a much more longer recovery time and he wouldn't even be in in the mix there. But I don't know. If you're even going, let's say, the entire rest of the regular season without him, it's getting pretty bleak pretty quickly. This was a maxi and Embiid team, and then the rest of the guys filled in. I think Tobias Harris has been very good this year, and he deserves a lot of credit for just like stepping up whenever they need him to. I mean, that's probably what the money is for, but uh, he does get derided <laughs> probably unnecessarily so. Um, but even he's hurt. He, he's been kind of, I think he said he was like 80% in the last game. And if you look at the guys, they're also trotting out there because Batum also isn't playing. It's like Marcus Morris. It's Paul Reed starting. You're hoping that Mo Bamba can come off the bench and be a rim protector. It's like pretty bleak. So I would honestly make the case of going the reverse order at this mm. point, which is, do you just like not do anything? or maybe even field offers for Tobias if there are offers out there? Because if long-term you're saying... He's probably not what we want as our third guy or even our fourth guy. Maybe let's move him earlier and let's like bottom out as much as possible. They have their own pick this year. And I I think it would be a bad sign to Embiid who they're probably trying to appease long-term and say, hey, we could build a a long-term winner. On the other hand, look what happened with Luka and Derek Lively. We all kind of piled on the Mavs. And saying like, oh, they tanked. How how like unsavory that was. But now they have a lob partner for Luca for the next decade, just because they have a higher draft pick. So, I I think there's some logic to bottoming out as much as possible. And in the East, like, are they really going to fall out of the play-in with some of these teams that are in the mix there? 
Um, but you know, I would doubt it, but honestly, I think there's a lot of like logic to that move. That's a good point because they could also move that, right? Like this draft isn't as good. They could also move that pick as well and try to see what they could get in the off season. And like, I don't think that Paul George is going to go anywhere, but they could give Paul George a max contract if something went south with the Clippers. I know it feels like he wants to be in LA, but who the hell knows if something gets ugly with the Clippers, because I know the Clippers are, they've been the best team in the NBA for a while, but We've seen what has happened. That franchise has been snake bitten. Okay, so you mentioned the Cavs. You mentioned the Knicks earlier. So since the start of the new year, the Cavs are first in net rating. The Knicks are second. Defensive rating, the Knicks are first. The Cavs are second. Now, a lot of that for Cleveland came when they only had two of their four. I guess you'd call them stars, but two of the four guys that have made all-star games in the past. So we'll see how this all gels in the long term. I know those guys are back now, but do you see either one of those teams adding? I mean, it feels like for Cleveland, they would probably look at it and say, well, we get our guys back, so let's just see how this thing goes. But the Knicks, I mean, they already made a big move adding OJ, uh, OG, which terrifies me as a Celtics fan because that guy can cover Jason Tatum, he can cover Jalen Brown, he can cover, I mean, basically everybody in the NBA. I mean, they could probably, if they wanted to, throw him on Porzingis for a little bit. So it feels like they're like one move away from being a legit bona fide contender. But I think at the very least, I mean, they could give the Celtics a hell of a series. So do you see either one of those teams making a real impactful move or is it more on the periphery? I would assume the Knicks do something if only because mm. Julius Randle's injury has really laid right. bare how little they have in the ball handling department after getting rid of RJ and Emmanuel quickly. Now Jalen Brunson has been a meteor for like a month plus now and is all of a sudden the mayor of New York and deservedly so that's an awesome story. Uh, and I'm really happy for that. I love watching the Knicks and I love watching them in part because of what OG gives them, but also because Brunson has been afforded just the space and opportunity to be the guy there. But he's pretty much the only guy that could dribble <laughs> at this point, like maybe Dante G- DiVincenzo, <laughs> but like they're starting precious to chew at the four and it gets sludgy pretty quickly out there. It's a lot of uh, McBride. You're seeing a lot of Jericho Sims. And so I would assume they have to get a ball handler in there. Now, you can make the case that they should be thinking long-term more than anything. And maybe they don't waste their draft capital on a short-term move just to fortify what they're doing. But I also took note that in the manual, in the quickly in OG trade, they got precious Achua back as a backup five, if only because Mitchell Robinson seemed to be out for the season at that point, he might come back later in, in the playoffs, but we'll see that to me seems like the type of thinking that they they think they have like a little bit of a window here. And I do think that they have a pretty good inside track into the Eastern conference finals. Now, some of these other teams we're mentioning aren't stepping forward. So, but like a Jordan Clarkson, a D'Angelo Russell, someone who could provide juice and ball handling. I would assume that they do that as opposed to the Cavs who they really don't have much to go out and fortify what they already have. Yeah, you probably don't want to waste too many, or not waste, but use too many assets because it is going to be an appealing place to play now. Now that the Knicks are actually good again and they actually have a competent product. It is funny to me how like Julius Randle is perceived there. Like some like people hate him at times, then they love him. And when he's out of the lineup, it's like he actually is kind of important to the offense. I know it's such a bad start to the season for him, but he's been really good. And look, he made it as an all-star reserve. Okay, so in terms of some of the biggest names around the league, DeJounte Murray, Bruce, I'm talking about at the deadline, not obviously the biggest name, but DeJounte <laughs> Murray, Bruce Brown, I guess Kuzma will be in this category, Tyus Jones, it appears he could be moved, DeMar DeRozan, I don't know how useful he is to a playoff team, but I mean, it, he should, his effective field goal percentage is 133rd out of 141 qualifiers, I get it's because he doesn't take a lot of threes, 
But who do you think is the biggest player that gets moved here? I would say Murray, although the Hawks have been pretty decent of late. Like they, they won four in a row and they gave the Clippers a real strong showing last night uh, at home. It has been a pretty long homestand, but like been some pretty solid teams, the Lakers and, and, and whatnot. But to me, I've been watching them a lot lately and I think they have something with that team underneath all of these veteran players that they've assembled. So they have Clint Capella, they have Bogdanovich, you know, they, they have Murray. But underneath all of that, I think they do have a pretty solid young core. Jalen Johnson, I think, is a guy. Like, I, I think he's exactly what you wanted John Collins to be because he plays with really good force, but he's a little bit more athletic, more of a four than a five. He has a good touch on his shot, and he's also a pretty good passer. I could see that guy being as soon as next season being like a 18, 8, and 4 guy all of a sudden. You're like, Jalen Johnson, like this this is a guy we can help build around. So between him and Nyeka Kongu, who's also a pretty good switch defender and um, had, had, has shown some stuff, especially of late, like I think you have the makings of something if you do want to build around Trey. And the whole thing is like, Trey's not going to want to give the ball up. We've known this, and like they tried to force their hand with DeJounte Murray being that, but like Murray is at his best when he's setting up other guys. We've seen his shot kind of come and go, and so putting him off the ball just doesn't make sense, and Trey's not going to give up the ball. So I think if you want to empower Trey, if you want to kind of build for the future, it makes sense to me to go and trade Murray. And I also think like there really aren't that many names on the market. We've just been talking about it. So like you might be able to leverage a pretty good asset package, maybe not to the point of what you paid for Murray in the first place, but like you can get some stuff back and maybe move forward. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense to move him and he's probably the biggest name that I could see going. Yeah. And he signed long-term too. So if they're, if they really don't want to keep him, it may be a time to get rid of him because you don't want that contract being on your books if you don't feel like he's part of the future with the organization. So you mentioned a couple of guys on Utah earlier in terms of Kelly Olenek, maybe Jordan Clarkson. And then you look at Colin Sexton's been really good for them. And it feels like whatever. And look, I know he's never going to be the most efficient player, but it feels like he's playing really well in Will Hardy's system. How willing do you think Danny Ainge is going to be to move guys like last year we saw him move Conley and they were like in the playing conversation Danny was fine with making those trades but does he trade one guy is it two guys like I don't think he'd trade three guys right it just feels like I know they're looking for the long term here but it does feel like they're at least building some something that's a competitive product like Olenek is the obvious one to me because he's on that expiring contract but how many guys is Danny going to be willing to give up I think if you look at last year's deadline, so post Rudy Gobert, post Donovan Mitchell, the guys that they actually moved were the guys that probably made the most sense. I know Mike Conley has gone on to be very good for the Timberwolves. He's been like the the steady adult in that room, but it kind of made sense where they were, especially as things started to fall apart for, for the Jazz last season. I do think Kelly Olynyk being on... Uh, expiring contract and considering just the amount of bigs that they have on that team to the point where they're probably not playing Taylor Hendricks as much as they should their first round lottery pick this past year. I, I think he makes sense, but I would be surprised at this point if they hit the full on eject button, if they went and did a Lowry marketing deal. Now, if you looked at how they're playing of late, I could definitely see the case for it. And I do think there would be a lot of suitors for him if they did put him on the market for sure. Like, God, I yeah. I could list off every single contender at this point. Maybe OKC gets in the mix there. Maybe you're talking about Jonathan Kaminga on and on and on. Um, but 
I would be surprised if they did a full scale. Let's tear this down because once you tear, if you tear it down twice in a row, like what's actually left at this point? You had you hit a right. miracle with Markinen. Just accept the good thing and move it forward. Yeah, and Markinen too. He would be one of the easiest fits that any team could bring in. I mean, he's one of the best catch and shoot guys in the NBA. He's been much better driving the basketball too. I, he's a really good. I didn't. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't see that when they traded him from. Cleveland, I'm like, how the hell did they get this out of Laurie Market? And it felt like the Bulls had given up on him. The Cavs, I mean, they're doing it to get Donovan Mitchell, but he's been outstanding for them. All right, on the Celts before we let you go, Barrier. So I'm just thinking about this from a playoff perspective. And the reason they got Porzingis is because they were sick and tired of, in particular, the matchup against Miami. Jason Tatum said it the other day about they could switch everything. And Bam could cover everybody, but now you have Porzingis, where you can't switch everybody on to Porzingis because Porzingis can kill you in the post, he can kill you at the free throw line. One of the things I look at is like the fourth quarter numbers this season, Tatum is 41% from the field, 36% from deep. Porzingis and White have been their two most efficient players in the fourth quarter. White's 50 and 42, Porzingis is 50.8, and his three-point shooting is not as good. But you go back to last year's postseason, the numbers weren't great for Tatum and Jalen in terms of the efficiency. The one question I have is, are they going to be able to late in games be willing to say, hey, our most efficient play? And I know it's like you look across the league, Jokic and Murray are going to be doing their thing. Like in Phoenix, it's going to be Durant or Booker. Like this is what stars do. But the Celtics are in a a unique position where it's almost like, hey, it may be better to give it to the seven foot three guy than to have Tatum, who's the first team all NBA guy, who's the face of the franchise and all that. How tough of a conversation or how tough is that in game, do you think, for Joe Mazzulla to do where it's like, hey, there's five minutes left. We're up by two. But you know what? We're actually going to run a Derek White, Kristaps Porzingis pick and roll. I think the hope would be that it would be an easy conversation by that point in the season, because what this regular season has been for me, for the Celtics, is a proof of concept, not only that of this starting five, but also of Kristaps Porzingis as being kind of a, a... like a franchise cornerstone for this team. Like no disrespect to what Jalen Brown has has been doing. And he's obviously a deserved all-star. And I think like he gets overlooked in how much he's able to do for this team. But like, I think this team goes as far as like maybe Porzingis can take them. And I think you started to see the anxiety around like even emanating from the team a little bit, but certainly from the fan base, certainly from Bill when Porzingis goes down for an apparent injury. It just seems like he is essential to what they do now. And I realize that that is a much more difficult conversation for a team that's so veteran laden, uh, especially with people like Tatum and Brown, who are a little bit more headstrong Brown in particular, but like Porzingis has proved at this point that he should probably be looked to in those sorts of situations. And at this point, I think you have to start looking at him as almost maybe not Tatum, but like probably your number two in the pecking order, and unfortunately for Joe Missoula, like that's what the money is for. And that's your job <laughs> in order to establish the hierarchy for there. That's probably, that's what you need. That's your coaching job for the rest of the season. Not any of these trade stuff, like just figure out how to empower Porzingis as one of your most important players. Yeah. And the other thing is like the reason Porzingis is here is because of some of the issues Tatum has had in the postseason, right? Where Tatum is a great player. I just don't think he's on that list where it's like, even now, hey, Kawhi's going to go win us a game, right? Tatum's done it. I mean, he closed game six against Philly, but he also was bad for like two games in a row to the point where if he didn't say, if he didn't do what he did in the end of game six, then we're having a totally different conversation. And then he has the 51 against 
Philadelphia, but it's weird. I mean, you think about how this team is structured. Like I was looking at it since 2000, the only teams that haven't won a chance that haven't had a former MVP or a current MVP on their roster is the 2019 Raptors who had uh, MVP quality player in Kawhi. It just he could have won it in 17. He didn't, though. It didn't play those year. Westbrook won it. And the 04 Pistons, like it's very rare to see a team win it this way. But I do feel like to Brad's credit, I mean, they got Drew, they got Chris Stops, they've given Tatum, I would argue, like as a number one option, maybe outside of the Clippers, like Tatum has the best team around him in the league. Drew Holiday is a max player who won a title <laughs> and has stepped up in many a playoff games. And yet he feels like an ancillary reserve a lot of the time. To this team, and it just goes to show you like the depth of talent in this starting five. I'm not gonna like start comparing him to the KD Warriors or anything, but this is one of the most lock solid starting fives that I could think of in so so long. And yet, I can't think of a team that I'm so confident in on in, on paper that it makes so much sense. Uh, just the way that they play off each other and how you space for Tatum in order to give him more room to do what he does. And oh man, Porzingis taken off as a post-up player, which for so long was the issue with him. Like it doesn't matter so much that his three ball isn't good there. But And yet when it gets into the fourth quarter and it comes down to crunch time, I can't think of a team that I'm just more nervous for. Like it, it's just such a weird contrast of these two extremes. And like, I don't know outside of maybe a hypnotist, like what you do at the deadline to enforce that because it kind of is baked into the structure. If you're going to play through Tatum, if you're going to empower him as your number one, you just need to make it as easy as possible then hope for the best. And so uh, I love the Celtics, but at the same time, I am deathly afraid for the Celtics in most big games. Yeah, it happened in the Denver game where you're like, okay, Denver's going to execute down the stretch and the Celtics aren't. And like, it took Denver having their two best players each go for 30 plus points to beat the Celtics by two points. They only scored 102 points. That tells you that it was the offense. The defense wasn't the problem. The offense was the yeah. problem in that game. And I think they executed their defensive game plan. They're like, let's have all the other guys take a bunch of shots. And it ended up working out defensively. It's just they couldn't close that game offensively. So I'm with you. I mean, this team is in great position. But once we get into the playoffs, if it's close in the fourth quarter, I would be nervous as hell because we'll see what happens. All right. That is Justin Verrier from The Ringer. Of course, group chat, big podcast coming on Thursday after the trading deadline. Verrier, thanks so much for the time. Hopefully this is a warm-up for you as you get ready for the trading deadline. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Happy Super Bowl to all who celebrate from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. If you're like me, Super Bowl Sunday is all about scoring the best seat on the couch, grabbing your favorite football snacks, and placing some super bets. All right, how about this? Christian McCaffrey has scored at least two touchdowns in each playoff game for the San Francisco 49ers. Obviously, he scores a touchdown basically every game that he plays in. So you can get this at plus 250 for McCaffrey to score two touchdowns. I like that. Plus 250 McCaffrey, two TDs. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W or two or three. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets for which players will score a touchdown how many points will be scored, and so much more. If you're new to FanDuel, join today and you'll get $200 in bonus bets when you win your first $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com Pike to sign up. That's FanDuel.com Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com RG. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com.
Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Justin Verrier. Trading deadline coming up. And it's a good thing that the Celtics don't have to make a big dramatic move. I know it's not as exciting as the rest of the teams in the NBA, but the rest of the teams in the NBA roster-wise want to be where the Celtics are right now. So it is going to be a little bit boring. We had our excitement in the offseason when they got Porzingis, when they got Drew Holiday, right? I mean, think about it. You'd rather be the Celtics right now than the Red Sox, where it's like, can we please do something exciting? So I... Understand that there won't be the fireworks with the Celts, but they're in a great position. We'll see what they do. After talking with Verrier, I think that DeLon Wright is a guy that makes a lot of sense, and Andre Drummond, they both make a lot of sense. I'm going to predict it's one of those two guys. And remember the thing with Washington is the Celtics recently did business with the Wizards, of course, in the Porzingis deal. So just keep that in mind as Brad and the front office in Washington, obviously familiar with each other. But Drummond does feel like it would really fit a need. So I would be excited about Drummond. And we'll see. We'll see what the Celtics do. So excited for the trading deadline. Okay, I did want to get to some Patriots-related notes here. So Steve Belichick didn't have a chance to talk about this the other day because it happened after we recorded. Steve Belichick took the Washington job as their defensive coordinator. Of course, I'm talking about the Washington Huskies. Jed Fish, of course, coached for Bill Belichick here for, what, a year? Steve Belichick was, of course, on that staff. So he goes to Washington. Jed Fish had previously been the coach at Arizona, did a really good job there this past season. So Steve Belichick, if you look at the numbers last season, the Patriots defense, remember he has been the defensive play caller since 19. The Patriots were eighth in EPA per play and they were seventh in success rate. Okay. And this is after, remember they lost Christian Gonzalez and they lost Matthew Judon. So they lost their two defensive players. Now, obviously they had good defensive personnel. Christian Barmore emerged as a stud, but on paper, they lost their two best defensive players and they still finished in the top 10 in both EPA per play and seventh in success rate. And you look at the fact that they had the fourth best scoring percentage against in the entire NFL last season, and they had the worst field position because their offense stunk. So worst field position, yet fourth best in scoring percentage against. That is an incredible number. To have those two numbers correspond with each other is just unbelievable. And Steve Belichick deserves a ton of credit for this. And if you look at it since 19, when Belichick became, Steve Belichick became the defensive play caller after Brian Flores left for his head coaching job with the Miami Dolphins, you know where the Patriots rank in EPA per play since 2019 defensively? Number one in the entire NFL. And they went through a bunch of different personnel. Remember, it started with Gilmore as the defensive player of the year. And obviously it changed. They haven't had a lockdown number one corner for multiple years until they got Christian Gonzalez and he barely played. And he's been versatile in terms of how he calls games. You think about it. So this past season, Judon, of course, goes down with the injury. He's your best pass rusher. So what happens after Judon goes down? They start to blitz more. They were fourth in blitz rate this past season at 35.2%. They were 19th the year before at 21.6%. So we're talking about a 13.6% percentage point increase as it pertains to your blitz rate. That is not a small number. So Steve Belichick was very versatile when it comes to that. So they, of course, have Mayo, who's a defensive guy, as we all know. Demarcus Covington gets promoted. They also recently added former Packers defensive line coach Jerry Montgomery. Montgomery, like we were talking about with Alex Van Pelt on the Sunday pod, and, of course, with Ben McAdoo, where we talked about it was getting close to the point where Ben McAdoo was being hired. Multiple people reported today that McAdoo is going to be a senior assistant or senior associate, whatever it's going to be with the offensive side of the football. So we'll get to see him and his big suits here with the Patriots. And he won't be holding the play sheet because he's not calling the plays. That's going to be Van Pell. But more proof that Elliot Wolf is completely running this organization now 
But you get the point. In terms of the defensive personnel, you bring in another guy to help out Mayo and Covington. But my biggest thing here is we focus so much on the offensive coordinator, what the Patriots are going to do at the quarterback position. And Mayo is obviously a very good defensive mind, was part of the game planning, of course, with Steve Belichick. And he led a lot of meetings and all that. But my point is just like, I kind of feel like the Steve Belichick loss is underrated. Like it's almost flown under the radar. Like we just, oh, it's no big deal. You lose Steve Belichick. I think it is a big deal. He's obviously proven himself as a really good defensive play caller that can go from different ways of playing on a year-to-year basis based on what the personnel is. So I do think that if we get to the point next season and you're like, wait, the defense isn't as good as it was last year. I think maybe at that point, Steve Belichick will finally get his credit. I think it's good for Steve that he's now coaching elsewhere and obviously his dad isn't going to be there. So he'll get more of the credit if Washington has like a great defensive season this upcoming year. But I do feel like this is maybe an under the radar thing that's not getting enough attention because we focus so much on how this offense needs to be fixed in the upcoming season. Okay, so shocker that one of the big storylines coming out of Super Bowl week is Tom Brady versus Pat Mahomes. So Mahomes was asked about chasing down Brady and passing Brady as the greatest of all time on Monday night when they were doing their first press availability Super Bowl night where it's Bunch of guys are up at the podium. It, it's really a crazy night. If you've never been to one, I would encourage go to one in your life. It's just, it's really weird. I mean, it's just all these guys are talking. You get a bunch of weird questions too. This is when, remember there was a woman one year that proposed to Brady at one of these. It just, it's the opening night of the Super Bowl. It's Monday night every year. So it's just, it's out of control. But anyway, so Mahomes is asked about chasing down Brady and he says, I'm not even close to halfway. You ask me this question in like 15 years and I'll see if I can get close to seven. But seven seems like a long way away. Mahomes answers all these. Like, I love Mahomes. I really like him. He answers all these questions correctly. But this is the conversation we're having a day into the Super Bowl is Brady versus Mahomes. There's so many interesting storylines in the game and the Niners and the Chiefs, like they just played in twenty, then the 2019 Super Bowl, I guess after the 2019 season, but you get the point, the rematch. And this has become like the, the story, like on first take, this is being debated today. It was being debated yesterday before Mahomes even answered the question, right? So I also feel like, and like I said with Mahomes, I feel like he does really, he does a really good job answering all these questions, but there seems to be sort of like this dismissal of Brady's first three Super Bowls where it's like, oh yeah, Tom was just a game manager. Now in 2001, he was asked to manage games. and But when he needed to make critical plays, he did. Like when they went down the field and set up the game-winning field goal for Adam Vinatieri, when the great, the late great John Madden had said, we should play for overtime here. And instead, Brady and company go down the field. They set up Vinatieri for the field goal, of course. And you think about the year after in 2002 when the Patriots missed the playoffs, like Brady led the NFL in touchdown passes that year. So yeah, in 2001, yes, he was a game manager as about the defense, but in 03, 04, Brady was an elite quarterback in the NFL. He wasn't just a guy that was along for the ride, right? So, and also like you look at some of the numbers in terms of the numbers that Mahomes is putting up compared to what Brady put up early in his career. It's a totally different NFL now than it was. A, you can't compare what those guys were doing early in their career, like what Tom was doing to what Mahomes did early in his career. It's the same thing. Like the guy that amazes me the most is how did Dan Marino have those passing numbers in 1984? Like all the passing leaders of all time, it's always like comparing seasons. And Dan Marino is always on that list from 1984. That continues to amaze me that 
that's more impressive than like all these guys putting up crazy numbers now. It's like Marino was doing that in 1984. But anyway, getting back to my original point here, you go back to after the Patriots won their third Super Bowl, 06, Brady carried that team to an AFC championship. 07, of course, the Patriots broke the NFL before losing to the Giants in the Super Bowl. And if you look at it now, the Chiefs are not even in their first dynasty until they win the third one. Now, I'm predicting that they're going to do that. I'm going to pick them to win it. I'm going to bet them to win it on FanDuel. Just like I said, I'm never betting against Mahomes again when I had them for plus 180 against the Ravens. I'm not betting against them, but they still got to get the third one before they become a dynasty, right? And sure, Mahomes, like to this point, he's already got the two MVPs, more than Brady had at this point. But you also look at Tom Brady's last four Super Bowls. He did it at 37, he did it at 39, he did it at 41, and he did it at 43. Now, as I mentioned, like, I'm not going to bet against Pat Mahomes, but that's a really difficult place to get to, to get all these Super Bowls, right? Mahomes wants to do it for a while, but eventually Kelsey, and I would argue, look, Kelsey has turned it on in the postseason, but he has not been the same player throughout the regular season that he's been in most years. I like some of their young players. I really like Pacheco. I really like Rache Rice, but let's just see how this thing goes, like, You're going to have now, and look, I get they've had their issues, but Jim Harbaugh is now coaching Justin Herbert. They've been poorly coached for the past couple of years. Joe Burrow is going to come back next season healthy, and that's a really good football team. So, And C.J. Stroud emerged into an incredible quarterback in year one. Let's see some of the pieces that they could put around C.J. Stroud. I always mention a guy like T. Higgins for the Patriots. Heck, the Texans could go out and get T. Higgins. So my point being is like this whole idea of catching Brady, catching the seven, it just, it's a long way before we get to this point. And the biggest thing to me that always gets ignored in all this, and I brought it up before when we've mentioned the Brady-Mahomes comparison, Brady beat him in the postseason twice. He prevented Mahomes from winning two Super Bowls, right? I mean, you think about it, they stopped the Chiefs in the AFC title game, and then Brady with the Buccaneers beat the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. It's like, if it would be if Magic Johnson, when he first played Michael Jordan in Michael Jordan's first NBA Finals, if Magic Johnson beat him in the Finals that year, then beat him again, and then had more championships when it was all said and done than Michael Jordan had. That's what it would be like, like what Brady just did to Pat Mahomes over the past few years. So I just feel like this whole idea of like, we have to talk about Brady versus Mahomes at the Super Bowl, it's, just, it's already tired to me. Brady's only been retired one year, and we're already having these conversations before Mahomes even goes out and wins the third, I hope Sunday for financial reasons, but before even have that game all said and done. We're already having these conversations about Mahomes against Brady. And like I said, I give Pat Mahomes a ton of credit. He handles all this stuff the right way, but it's just it's unbelievable to me that this is the conversation. All right, coming up next, we'll bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. 
When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I am great, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm getting ready for the trading deadline in the NBA, Mm -hmm. getting ready for the Super Bowl. It's a good week, although I will say this. Dude, I hurt my shoulder. My shoulder is absolutely killing me. I I can't even run. Like, it hurts me to run. I had to do the Stairmaster this morning because my shoulder is killing me so much. I tore it years ago, never got it fixed, and I was throwing balls yesterday to my parents' dog. My shoulder, I woke up this morning, my shoulder is killing me. It is absolutely throbbing right now. So it's not good. It's not a good situation. Other than that, yeah. Other than that, oh, what'd you say? How many did I throw? No, I said you got, well, first of all, you got to use the chuck it, Brian. A little safer. Safer on the shoulder. I usually hit them like, I usually hit them balls with the golf club, but Mm. I didn't do that. I was throwing balls off the roof and I usually would do it underhand to protect the shoulder, but I felt good. I was throwing them Mm. overhand and now my shoulder is absolutely killing me today. So it's not fun. You know, when it, you know when you hurt somebody that's got like a pulse? That's what it feels like right now. I was having trouble like putting my sweatshirt on, like putting the yeah. getting the sleeve up, like putting my arm up to put it on. So I'm not good. I'm not I'm, I'm not good when it comes to my health, but I am feeling great about the week. Trading deadline, Super Bowl week. It's a fun week, man. Yeah, not bad. Okay, so Jamie, I wanted to bring you in on this. Have you heard why Mike Vrabel didn't get a job this coaching cycle? I've heard plenty of things, but what you got? Diana Rossini said, an anonymous GM told her, that Vrabel's physical stature may have been a factor. Quote, he's a very large human being and he can be very intimidating to people in an organization. <laughs> so that's why. Apparently wow. that's part of the reason Vrabel didn't get a job. <laughs> hey, uh, Mike, we'd love to hire you, man, but I can't have you in a meeting angry because I would be very intimidated <laughs> by you. What is he? I mean, he's probably what? I think he's 6'4", and he's probably yeah. 250 or so, right? I mean, he's still like in really good shape for a guy that, you know, played linebacker in the NFL. He's still in great shape. He still looks like he lifts a lot. So, yeah, apparently that's why. But good for him. In in some sense, it's good for him because there weren't a ton of good jobs out there. Now, the commanders could eventually become a good job. That's a weird situation now. Now they bring in Cliff Kingsbury. It feels like they're really going full throttle to try to get Caleb Williams because Caleb Williams likes Cliff Kingsbury. But, of course, you'd have to figure out the Chicago thing before you do that. Caleb Williams is apparently from that area, from washington dc area like so maybe they're trying to do something to get caleb williams but my point is like that job unless you nail the quarterback it's not a great job right now now you have Mm -hmm. the avenue to get better and then the other thing i would say is like he didn't get the Chargers job jim harbaugh did so maybe next year like we keep talking about it with bill one of these good jobs the cowboys the the eagles the bills one of those opens up and vrabel gets a better job because of it but i mean i i can't believe a gm would actually say that yeah, you know, we liked him, but he was kind of intimidating. He's six four. You seen him before? Have you seen him in person? He's he's a little big. It's ridiculous. It's also like this is the NFL. This is a the football league. Like, yeah, does that mean any former player <laughs> this qualifies as? Like, look at Dan Campbell. He's huge. He's playing the NFC yeah. Championship. Well, I think they meant like for the people in the front office, not right. like for the players, like the people that were having meetings with him. Like, you know, the five ten. 150 pound analytic guy that's like uh Vrabel's screaming at me right now I think they meant for those type of people but that's why which I mean it's 
that's soft that if you don't hire a guy because he's 6'4", 250. But it helped the Celtics when they hired a big guy. Ime is huge. That's true. And he's intimidating. It actually helped the Celtics. I'd say that. Helped them for sure. <laughs> no, I mean, I think Vrabel's a good coach. I think that our, that uh, report also said, though, like, and he's in like a weird age where he's in his late 40s. I'm like, what, what does that mean? Is it like Goldilocks? Like he's not too old, but he's not too young. Like generally that's what you look for, oh. right? You coach right into the prime. It's like, what? Like it's one thing to say Bill Belichick's too old at 72, but it's like, oh, like he didn't get hired because he's 48. It's like, what, what does that mean? Yeah, like uh, he's a little too old for us, okay? We like need him what? to be a little bit younger. We'd like him to be more like the Mike McDaniel age bracket than the age bracket that he's in, or the Gerard Mayo age bracket, because Mayo's, what, 37. So Vrabel's right. a little bit too old for that. That doesn't Amazing, make any sense to me. I just found that funny. You excited for McAdoo? <sighs> oh, Brian. I, I, they, I just don't. I wish we could get someone, some one guy that like has like a decent track record. I, I can't say I'm excited for McAdoo, but... um. I don't know. I don't know why. They're, it seems like they're having a bit of trouble finding some offensive minds, no? Well, it's just Elliot Wolf is doing exactly what Bill Belichick used to do. Getting Elliot his old Wolf is just, from the Packers. He's hiring all his friends. The yeah. same thing is happening with the Patriots. He's just like, hey, Alex, you want to come over? Hey, Ben, come on. <laughs> yeah. Let's hang yeah. out. Want to hang out again? It's like, okay. So he's just going to hire all his old friends. That's what they're doing. Like his whole idea, there was this big change in collaboration. It's just Elliot Wolf is doing everything that Bill Belichick used to do. He's just running everything. Right. Well, needless to say, Ben McAdoo does not inspire a lot of excitement or confidence. If the Patriots win the Super Bowl in the next five years, will you get the Ben McAdoo haircut? <laughs> sure, Brian. You know, if, if they win the Super Bowl in the next five years, if they win a playoff game in the next three years, how about that? I'll do that. Yeah, I know we talked about this the other day, but the more and more I see that picture of Ben McAdoo when he was introduced as the Giants That's head incredible. coach. How did none of his friends or nobody in his family be like, hey, the suit doesn't fit. And the hair is atrocious. <laughs> How does somebody talk to him? I mean, just knowing that you're going to go out in front of the New York Post and what they do with the covers, like that's just that's low hanging fruit for them. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, Jamie. <laughs> good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts 
or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.